Talkback 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. KGVO, Missoula's news and weather station. Hey, welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Glad to have you along. A brand new week of Talkback. Talkback this morning brought to you by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery. Yes, for all of your New York favorites, they have locks, they have New York cheesecake, which is magnificent. And by the way, cannolis all at Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery out on North Reserve. And by Phillips Janitorial, where they offer residential and commercial cleaning. Their powerful steam extraction method brings tired and dirty carpets right back to life. And no job, of course, too big or too small. Get a free estimate at 260-6617. The views and opinions expressed on TalkBack are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Okay, good to have you along, ladies and gentlemen. A brand new week of TalkBack shows. Nick Christensen right over there. Good morning. How you doing, partner? Doing good. All right. Joining us in the studio, uh, the smartest guy in the room, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Dr. Peter. Well, that doesn't say much. What can I tell you? You're, you're really not helping the show. If I'm the smartest guy on the, in the room, oh boy, are we in trouble. All right. Dr. Peter Kolb and, of course, MSU Extension, University of Montana Forestry Department. All that. You, 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 you bridge the gap. Between Grizz and Cats. Oh, well, or either that or I skim off of both universities, <laughs> either way. Well, it's good to have you aboard. Now, you have uh, come, as you mentioned, loaded for bear today because there's a lot going on. Uh, people have been complaining, what? This is weather. It just, well, where's spring? What happened? You actually have some answers. Well, I have some data okay. because, right. you know, yeah. as, as an... And by the way, by the way, the phone lines are open. If you have a question for Dr. Kolb, as many often do, as we're coming into spring, and maybe you have some questions about what we can do as spring eventually gets here, Seven two one twelve ninety. Okay, go ahead, please. Well, everybody's noticed, of course, that we have a record uh, severe winter, uh, record snowpack, at least at my house, definitely. Um, it, the snowpack exceeds what was here in the winter of 96, 97. Uh, we've had three separate spells of sub-zero weather, 10 below. We set a record cold, again, up in Evero uh, and a lot of places in western Montana. Uh, and so this emits global warming and all that kind of thing. So why does this occur? And as a forest ecologist, of course, I'm interested in trees and how they grow and, and forest communities. But what affects forest communities, of course, is the weather. Uh, and what affects the weather is the climate. So this is kind of stuff that I track and, and look at. So the good news is trees are going to be really happy. Um, we're going into uh, summer with a record amount of moisture. Uh, which bodes well for a low severity fire season Yay. with smoke and all of that. Good news. Uh, yeah. So forests are going to be really happy with all of this. Um, of course, you know, we're waiting for spring and snow and winter and all of that gets a little tedious, uh, this time of year. Uh, so why, uh, why is this year so exceptionally cold? And it's, uh, kind of a, in my opinion, a perfect storm of multiple global events. Uh, so, you know, in past talkback programs, we've talked about the solar cycle. So the sun fluctuates on an 11-year cycle. Uh, so it has peak outputs and minimum outputs. Puts. And then on the longer cycle, those cycles vary, uh, those, those peaks and those uh, lows vary across time. And a lot, a lot of people were worried that 2021, uh, the solar cycle was going to be at an all-time low and that you know, the, the super all-time low is, is called a maunder minimum. And that's when we didn't have summer, basically. It stayed winter throughout throughout the summer. Uh, and that happened about 150 years ago. Um, I wasn't there, by the way. I was pretty close, but not quite. <laughs> well, that might explain a few things. But any, anyways, <laughs> yeah. well, we didn't quite reach a maunder minimum, but uh, the solar cycle was at an all-time low in, in 2021. And the sun is responsible uh, for 99.999999% of our atmospheric energy, our temperature, all of those types of things. Okay. Uh, and what plays in with this uh, solar energy, of course, are atmospheric gases. So greenhouse gases, the subject of global warming debates and discussions, which account for about four one hundredths of a percent of our atmosphere. Uh, what plays a much bigger role, and we don't talk about a lot because it's just there, is water vapor. Water vapor fluctuates uh, somewhere between 1 and 4% of our atmosphere. So 100 times to 1,000 times more powerful than greenhouse gases. 
Okay. And on so, average- so for, forgive me for interrupting here, but why then why, if this is true and this is to, you know, scientifically verifiable, why, why the emphasis on the one and not the other? Well, what do you do about water vapor entering the atmosphere? Okay. I mean, we could issue, initiate some studies and I'm sure, uh, I mean, I would speculate, let's put it that way, right. that all the irrigating we do on a global basis is adding water vapor to our atmosphere because, you know, the, the water has to evaporate off the ocean surface, off of land surface. And probably if you calculate the water emissions in the atmosphere from all of the irrigating that we do, which is necessary to feed the world, right? if you will, um, you know, it probably has a significant impact. We see it on a local scale. Missoula Valley, Bitterroot Valley, you see the haze in there during the summer, which is the humidity from everybody watering. I mean, that didn't used to be the case. Right. Uh, so, but water vapor is really important. And so now we go back to this discussion about the Tonga underwater volcano that we talked about uh, almost a year ago. I Which mean, is fascinating, by the way. Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. And yeah. it caught everybody by surprise. All the scientists, the volcanists, all of those folks. Uh, because the Tonga volcano uh blue uh, more water well one it's the 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 volcano on record for reaching or blowing materials the highest in the atmosphere of any volcano in history okay and not only that uh it blew something like a trillion tons of water into the upper atmosphere because you know you basically had a pressure cooker that exploded 500 feet under the ocean and it blew this huge uh water plume up into the atmosphere and into the stratosphere so you know the habitable zone that we're in is the troposphere okay and about halfway through the troposphere you're on the top of mount everest where you can't breathe anymore okay so you get up the stratosphere and uh, truly i mean you, you die in an instant up there but the tonga volcano increased the water vapor in the stratosphere by 10 percent i mean think about that we talk about greenhouse gases increasing by one or two one hundredths of a percent causing global climate change and here we had a volcano that increased the water content of the stratosphere by 10 percent. So, mean, so what, what we've experienced in this winter is no surprise to you. Well, I mean, I, I, I speculated in my own mind that this was going to happen. Um, but again, I'm, I'm not a quote unquote atmospheric scientist. I study these things because what happens in the climate and the weather and all of those types of things, the, the physics behind it, affects our weather patterns. And our weather patterns affect our forests. And the forest is what I'm interested in is why are we seeing this bark beetle outbreak? Why are we seeing these massive wildfires? Why are we seeing uh, drought and things like that? And of course, I'm interested is, okay, how far outside of the normal range of variability are these events? And as I've mentioned before, they're not that far out. I mean, we're well within normal variability of what's happened the last 10,000 years in this stable climatic period called the, Hol called the Holocene. Okay. So, you know, climate change and human contributions to climate change is a real phenomenon. But I've always said, what percentage of this is it affecting our, our climate and all of that? So when the the Tonga volcano blew and threw all this water in the atmosphere. I go, holy smokes, you know, all the literature, everything I read about atmospheric modeling and atmospheric gases, why isn't everybody jumping up and down going, oh, my God, you know, this is this is huge, you know. And the point is there weren't a whole lot of scientists that study this stuff because these are very, very rare events, right. okay? Right. And so there's a lot of people that have kind of jumped on it and looked at it, and there was speculation, well, water's a greenhouse gas, it absorbs energy and reflects it back to the Earth. But first, solar energy has to make it through the water vapor to the Earth's surface. And so there were these opposing points of view. One is that this uh, vapor cloud would reflect more sun's energy. And the other is that the vapor cloud would uh, trap more sun's energy. And what has happened, based on the scientists that have actually done the calculation, looked at that, is this massive vapor cloud, especially over the southern hemisphere, has reflected an enormous amount of solar energy right back out to space, and it hasn't come back uh, to the Earth. 
And so I've got some data that I'll, I'll show you. Yes, we, and we also have Jeff waiting on the line, so we're going to come right back. 721-1290 is our number. Dr. Peter Kolb just beginning, and there will be a test <laughs> when we're all done. Yes, indeed. It'll be a pass-fail. Don't worry. We're going to come right back uh, with more of Talk Back with Dr. Peter Kolb. Phone lines are open right after this. Even if you haven't heard of... Before we get to Jeff's call, you, you had a couple of things to wrap up here with this amazing... So far as yet, unreported uh, atmospheric event that is affecting our climate that nobody seems to want to talk about. Well, it is reported. It's just not being picked up by major media, right? which right. Is, is a shame. But, you know, the, the final piece of all of this that I want to throw on here is uh, so atmospheric temperatures are monitored. I mean, we have probes and monitors in the ocean and the atmosphere. And, and the Chinese spy balloon. Yeah, it, there you go. <laughs> um, well, actually, you know, that is really interesting because the spy balloon was in the stratosphere. It was way up in this in this area, which is so high, which is why we had to shoot four half million dollar missiles at it to finally bring it down. But that's a whole different story. Anyways, yes, yes. getting back to the stratosphere. So uh, temperatures have been measured in the atmosphere in the southern hemisphere because the Tonga volcano was in the southern hemisphere. And it threw up this massive water vapor cloud in the stratosphere. And so this last year, in the southern hemisphere, atmospheric temperatures, uh, because of this uh, water cloud, were 10 degrees colder than average. So across the whole southern uh, uh, hemisphere. Uh, and, you know, so now it's no coincidence that La Nina, which is cold Pacific Ocean, which has been creating this what they call the atmospheric river that's been dumping snow and rain on California, is directly related to uh, solar input. I mean, the, the ocean is a huge solar collector, if you will. And because of that cloud over there, people are scratching their heads. Why do we have a record three years La Nina uh, below average cold Pacific temperatures, you know? Uh, so this volcano, it's, it's not, it's a combination of low solar output. So we reached a super low period in solar output. And then you have this cloud, this vapor cloud put on top of it. So that has created um, a, a prolonged La Nina effect, uh, less solar energy, more moisture coming in here. And also we've had uh, now two, three years of super cold Pacific Decadal Oscillation. So the prediction for this summer is cool and wet. Uh, so anyway, so it's all these things coming together, the, the volcano, uh, solar output, and the interactions with the atmosphere. Thank you, Dr. Cole. Let's get right to the phone. And Jeff has been waiting. Jeff, good morning. You're on Talkback. Go ahead, sir. Hey, good morning. Uh, I'm already done with daylight saving time. <laughs> <laughs> now, are, are we on normal time or are we on daylight savings time? I never know. I never I, know which one I, is which. I never know. Yeah, it, uh, that could be a whole conversation itself. So, uh, so it's kind of a distraction. Sorry for that. Uh, First of all, I wanted to say thank you for your mini college here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that was uh, it was a wonderful event. In particular, uh, Marcia Getting you had her there for the second time, talking about estate planning, and that was just a uh, a wealth of information. She's a straight state treasure. And for uh, 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 talk back, Peter and Nick, I uh, would urge you to reach out to her and uh, have her on the show for. Uh, those of us of a certain generation for for certain, but for a whole bunch of people to help them with uh, their estate planning, that uh, would be a wonderful thing to do. Now, what is her name again? Uh, so, so we can get this right. Marsha, M-A-R-S-H-A, Getting, G-O-E-T-T-I-N-G. She's the one who puts out all the Mont guides on estate planning. So she's very knowledgeable and she's just a little firebrand too. So, uh, yeah, Marsha has spent her, her entire career developing uh, assistance programs for Montanans on how to plan your estates for retirement and, and all of that. And, yeah, she's the MSU Extension uh, Estate Planning Specialist. So she's my counterpart in the finance world where I'm the specialist in forestry. Fantastic. And, forestry, yes, she's forestry, a wonder, wonderful person. Forestry and finance. There you go. All right, Jeff, anything else? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I do actually have a tree question. I have a wonderful little uh, cherry tree, pie cherry tree. It only stands between five and six feet tall. It's almost like a little bonsai. Um, 
But I just noticed last fall that a lot of the branches on the inside have kind of grown intertwined, and I need to do some pruning here. I plan on doing it uh, this week or next. But my question is, how far down do I go in pruning? In other words, do I look to take out maybe more larger branches, or do I open up the inside, or do I want to take out uh, more smaller branches, or kind of what, what... how should I approach this in terms of uh, pruning it for uh, for its best life and productivity? Tell you what, Jeff, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to hang on because we're up against a break. We'll have uh, Dr. Kolb answer that when we come back from the break. By the way, just the type of questions we like to take with uh, Dr. Kolb here, 721-1290. We'll be right back. Healthy life. Okay, we are back on Talk Back. Uh, okay, Jeff had a, a question about his cherry tree. Go ahead. Well, I mean, pruning a tree is is part science and part art. I mean, how how do you what do you want to look at it? To increase the efficiency of the tree, you want to prune out all the interior branches that are that where the leaves stay in the shade, or the branches that are growing into other branches. We call those interfering branches. Um, how far you want to lift the tree, how you want to shape it, uh, is really dependent on you. Uh, so I did a nice little article on uh, exactly what you're asking about on our own Peter Christian's uh, backyard uh, uh, flowering hawthorn um, and or whatever the heck flowering it is. apple, crab apple, <laughs> whatever it is. Um, anyways, uh, that's pretty sad for me not to be able to identify that, but they're closely related anyways. Right, right. Uh, so if you go on our uh, webpage, uh, just Google MSU Extension Forestry and make sure it's Montana State, not Mississippi State. <laughs> okay, MSU Extension Forestry, uh, and you'll get our webpage and look under publications. And I have a, a publication on there that you can look at or download on uh, how to prune your fruit or flowering tree in the back in your backyard so i mean the main thing is that uh, you don't want to in any one pruning remove more than 50 percent of the really productive branches and those are the ones that put leaves out in the sunlight okay so your tree is wants to be like an umbrella it's a solar collector uh so and like a solar collector the leaves that are in the shade are really really inefficient to the tree and those you can prune off if you want to lift those, so take off your lower branches so that you can get underneath the trees, you're, go ahead and do that because you're culturing and shaping that tree to grow taller uh, and have a higher canopy, higher crown. Um, so, But you want to make good pruning cuts, so uh, real close to the stem, right where the swelling is. Again, uh, go look up the guide because that uh, will give you uh, more specific details of how and where to cut and where to prune. Um, but and to have sharp tools. Well, you want to have the right yeah. tools, right? Right. Uh, but really, if you want the tree to be uh, lifted, so uh, fewer lower branches, or you want to keep lower branches, that's up to you depending whether you want it as a visual screen um, or, or what it is you want out of the tree. So uh, does that answer your question just a little bit? Sure, I'll go look that up uh, as soon as I get done with it. I'm driving right now to a doctor's appointment, so uh, uh, sorry for the road noise. Oh, but, no, uh, no worries. Yeah, I'll go look that up, and, and uh, thank you for the help. I uh, I do want to kind of keep it shape. I mean, it's really easy to pick from right now. Even grandkids can come and pick, and I'd like to keep that, but I could tell that I needed to do something. So I appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Let's get another call in. Uh, Larry's on the line. Larry, good morning. You're on with Dr. Peter Cole. Go ahead, sir. Good morning. I'd like to go back to the volcanoes. I find that fascinating. And uh, I just watched a video this morning that said that uh, the year 536 was the worst year for climate change. And uh, they verified that through ice cores in Iceland and tree rings and uh, volcanoes in Iceland and other places set off a very climatic change that just darkened the world for years, uh, caused crop failure, wiped out half of the population of the Byzantine Empire, caused uh, yellow clouds of dust to cover China. And uh, I just wondered if you uh, had uh, encountered that uh, year in any of your research, Dr. Kolb, and it all kind of relates to Nick's uh, odd news segment because they think that was kind of a odd news uh, 
quirk that they uh, discovered there. Oh, absolutely. No. Thanks, Larry. Right. No, I mean, uh, our our historical climate record is absolutely fascinating, Uh, in part because it gives us the baseline, a baseline of what is what we call normal. Okay, we think of normal climate of perhaps what we've encountered in our lifespan. Uh, but really, normal climate, as I've mentioned before, is what happen- has happened the last 10,000 years of the Holocene, when we've had what's called relatively stable climate, but we've had massive fluctuations. So uh, the episode that you mentioned, yeah, I mean, Ice- the population of Iceland uh, was reduced by 98%. So, I mean, at one point, there were like 20,000 20, people living on Iceland, and it was reduced down to 2,000 people. They all died uh, during this episode that you're talking about of massive volcanic activity. Uh, so, and the climate change folks tend to uh, kind of toss off the volcanic stuff because, yeah, volcanic outputs, those are kind of average emissions over a certain period of time. Actually, they're not. You go through these massive fluctuations, and the point is, that, uh, as I just told to Peter, climate change and human inputs to climate change are very, very important. But when we get hung up on things like cows uh, producing methane, it's kind of like worrying about watering your house plants when your house is on fire. You know, there are these much, much bigger phenomenon that we need to be looking at, like solar output, uh, volcanoes, uh, you know, asteroids, if, if you want to. But there are a lot of other things that are part of our history that we really need to consider in all of these but things. But it's very difficult to politicize that. Well, sure. You know what I mean. Yeah. Right. Anyway, we're, we're up against the break. 721-1290 is our number. We're going to ask Alan to hang on through the break. We'll be back after the top of the hour. Stay with us. Victor deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in 2003. He sustained a moderate traumatic brain injury. One of the most important elements of caregiving is taking care of yourself. For many military veteran caregivers, their caregiving journey starts earlier in life and lasts longer. Visit AARP. This is Talkback, 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. KGVO, Missoula's news and weather station. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It is hour number two of Talkback for this Monday, brought to you this morning by Phillips Janitorial. No job too big or small, so if you have a home or a business that needs cleaning, here's the number to call right away at 406-260-6617. Also brought to you by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery. Authentic New York bagels, pastries, all the way from Little Italy. They fly them in. Can be found right here at the Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery, located on North Reserve. The views and opinions expressed on TalkBack are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Flying bagels. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. Good to have you back. Uh, Dr. Peter Kolb joining us here in the studio. Uh, so we are talking about something that I know that you're, you're nonplussed about this, about why national media hasn't picked this up and run with it to describe and explain why what's happening in the Sierras in California, what's happening here in Montana with our extended winter. I mean, it, it's, it's right there for everyone to see. Indeed it is. And it, it's, uh, you know, I just showed you um, a map of atmospheric temperatures. Right. Um, and it shows that about a, a third, uh, almost maybe 40 percent of the southern hemisphere is in this big bubble of uh, 10 degrees below average temperature, you know, as a result of, of this volcano. And, you know, this has implications on on the entire atmospheric dynamics of the Earth. You know, so um, calculations calculations have shown that the effects of the water plume from this volcano have affected the southern United States as well. I mean, so the water vapor is above and front over Florida and other places. So, you know, and again, this is a natural phenomenon that happens. And again, you go back through history as one of the gentlemen who called in had mentioned. Sure. You know, there there were these events, and you know, the last big one was really Krakatoa. But Pinatubo in, Phil- in the Philippines also caused, uh, it was also the year without summer here in the United States. We had a really abnormally uh, cool summer. So, and the thing they found out about this water vapor in the stratosphere is it's not dissipating. You know, they th- water typically lasts in our troposphere for maybe eight days. You know, it evaporates off of a body of water, off an irrigation field, off the ocean. It goes up in the atmosphere, and then it rains down somewhere. Okay, so the stratosphere is a whole nother layer, and it's something we don't know that so much this is, about. this is trapped up there. Yeah, it, uh, 
it appears that way. Right. So it's stayed up there for a whole year. And how long it will, will it remain that moist? Nobody knows. I yeah. mean, so and again, you know, we, we have to put it in the context of what is the vapor or what is the density of the air up in the stratosphere? Okay. So if you take a, a, a box of air here at sea level or Missoula, right. okay, and you put it up in the stratosphere, uh, it would expand to actually be as big a volume as all of the volume inside uh, uh, the Empire State Building. Okay. So the, the atmosphere is very, very thin. Thin. So a little bit of water spreads out across a large distance up in the stratosphere versus down here in the troposphere. Uh, but again, that effect is kind of like putting an umbrella over our atmosphere. And again, we the scientists, when this first happened, I went through all the literature and they were kind of split. We're not sure what this is going to do. It's either going to reflect solar radiation or it's going to trap heat that's radiating from the Earth's surface out to the out to the space again. And what it's shown to have done is it's reflecting solar radiation uh, back into space. So it's not you're not getting the heating effects in the southern hemisphere uh, and combine that with an already low solar output because right. of the we were in this dip in solar output. So what does that what does that portend? Uh, Alan, we'll get you a call in just a second. What does that portend for agriculture here in this country? Then? Well, again, what we've been suffering from is drought. Right. Okay. Uh, so what? Well, one is it it creates this massive uh, energy uh, discontinuity in the atmosphere. Okay. So you have one area that's getting energy and the other area that's not getting energy. So you're going to get massive mixing. So what that results in is big storms and unpredictable storms. And, you know, you've heard of polar vortexes and things like that. So some of the research that's looked at this says that this water vapor cloud has disrupted the speed at which our normal Antarctic and, and uh, uh, Arctic polar vortices move. Okay. They circulate. There's these massive low pressures. Well, they're circulating now at a much slower rate because of this water vapor that's in there, which is totally messing up normal uh, flows of low pressures and high pressures and jet streams and things like that. And, you know, I don't know if anybody is modeling this or, I mean, so it's clearly the global climate change folks model all of this stuff. And right, they have right. really advanced uh, models and computer programs that look at all this stuff. Um, but even with that, there's a large degree of uncertainty. So basically, when you have this disruption of one area is hot and one area, another area is cold, you're going to get all these mixing effects as they try to equalize themselves. And that's really, really hard to predict. Let's get Alan on the line. He's been waiting very patiently. Alan, thank you so much for your patience. You're on with Dr. Cole. Go ahead, sir. Well, good morning, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Uh, I have a phenomenon that's going on a little closer to home. It's in my front yard. I have a about a 40-year-old blue spruce. And what's happening right now, I've never seen anything this bad. I'm getting sprigs in my yard. You know, they're all like, I look up in the tree and I see this new growth. I, I think the squirrels are chewing them off. Can you explain what's going on and will it hurt the tree? And I mean, there's hundreds of these things in my yard. So the branch tips have been, are, are breaking off or being bitten off and ending up on your lawn. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, well, that is a squirrel activity, and squirrels are rodents. They need to chew, and uh, they actually will feed on the inner bark of the new tissue that's out there. And, uh, you know, they're probably not after the cones because spruce seeds are so small. I mean, that's kind of like trying to feed yourself with sesame seeds. Um, and so, but yeah, squirrels can be really destructive. And so they're just biting those off and probably chewing on the inner bark. Um, will it hurt your tree? It's, well, it's kind of like uh, shearing your tree. Uh, it shouldn't overall hurt your tree. It's going to change the shape a little bit. It might make it a little bit more compact. Uh, all depends because, of course, the, the squirrels aren't looking at it with the, with the same eye as you are for, where you're pruning from aesthetics. It's just food. Yeah, it's just food and yeah. something to do. So, um, you know, if, it, if it's too extensive, it can cause a little bit of a misshapen crown. But uh, it's what squirrels do. And okay, well, thank you so much. Now, are you located in Missoula? So are these the exotic fox squirrels uh, that are doing this? I, I don't, you know, I don't know one squirrel from another. Are they pretty big? 
Yes, they are. Yeah, those, so those are introduced. Those are not native to Montana. And yeah, they're, uh-huh. you know, they're, they're active. Yeah, Missoula has quite the population. I mean, if, if we ever have a food shortage, we could probably feed ourselves on squirrels for, <laughs> for about a month. But, I'm, but yeah, no, it's, um, it's just what they do. Uh, they, they need to constantly chew on stuff. Okay, well, thank you so much. Alan, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. Okay, we have Harry, Nancy, and Emmett. Everybody wants to talk to you now. Dr. Kolb, that's why we're, we have you here, and he's a fountain of information we really appreciate. We're going to come right back after this quick timeout. For over 100. Okay, we are back on Talkback. 721-1290 is our number, and a lot of folks are taking advantage of your expertise this morning, uh, Dr. Kolb. Uh, let's get Harry up first. If you wait the longest, Harry, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, Peter. Uh, I got a couple questions. First off, I've been watching a documentary called uh, Hidden Life of Trees. Have you ever seen it? And what do you think of it? I have. Uh, I think it's it's quite interesting. It tends to anthropomorphize trees a little bit, though. Okay. And the uh, second question: I, This is completely different. This is on the global uh, cl- uh, gli- climate climate change, but uh, seems like the well, you question a lot of what they predict or what they uh, you know, see for coming. And, uh, now, that's uh, part of science is you know, people doubting or questioning. But I'm wondering, how is it that all, so many uh, climatologists across the world are so wrong that they are they uh, part of some cabal? I, I hear conservative commentators say that they, they hate America, hate the capitalists, and they want to destroy the United States. Or How is it they get it so wrong, but you get it right? Well, it's, it's interesting. Well, uh, Dr. Culp and I were discussing this. Uh, uh, it could be, Harry, and you might agree or disagree, that whenever we talk about climate, it is so deeply politicized on both sides of the fence that if it doesn't fit your political narrative, maybe you won't want to report it. Does that make any sense? Well, uh, yeah, that's well, true. Or report what they want to do, which I, 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 how I, do you know that what, what you're saying is it politically part of your political view. Well, actually, I, mean, I actually I will disagree with you. And actually, um, I, I really don't care for how you're paraphrasing what I said. Um, I am not in any ways saying that I got it right and they got it wrong. So, you know, that's, a, that's kind of a crappy tactic that's used in politics is misquoting someone and asking them to defend themselves. Well, just, so don't, I'm just, well, I'm just saying, don't, you, don't misquote they're, me. They're wrong and you're right. Or, you know, you keep saying that they're, they're wrong. And I they're, have never said that they are wrong. Okay. I have never said that they are wrong. I have said that this is a complex phenomenon. And if you're uh, concerning yourself about something that is one one hundredth percent of the atmosphere, when you have these other effects going on, like water vapor change of 10 percent, I'm asking, why is that not uh, making national media? Okay, I have never said that the climate change or atmospheric scientists are wrong. Uh, what they are studying, they are doing with scientific integrity, uh, but they're also being funded to find uh, out why or how humans are impacting the climate. If that's what you're funded to do, that's what you're going to do. Um, I'm questioning of why are they not looking at some of this other phenomenon that's out there? And one of the answers is they're not paid to do that. Uh, you know, the, the Tonga volcano was a once in a lifetime type of event. There is no funding. Uh, you, you put in a proposal and said, Oh, I want to study a volcano that may erupt in 50 years. You're not going to get funded for that. Okay. Uh, but it did happen. And it is an important phenomenon. And so what I bring up is, is the question of why aren't people, why isn't the mass media jumping on this? Because this is an incredibly important phenomenon. Because it helps to explain oh. what's happening. So, but you said it so many times now, it's, they, it's unsure, they were unsure and they're still unsure. They, it's a, like you say, it's a one-time thing. So there, there's no real precedent. And so it, they thought maybe it would uh, block out or might increase the heat. So, you know, how do you, uh, you say, well, this is causing this when you don't know what it's going to do the first time? But first what, what has the IPCC done? They have modeled what the future uh, greenhouse concentration ca- uh, gases will de- do and what those gases might do to our climate. And because there's so much uncertainty in that calculation, 
they've had to come up with a new scientific standard uh, of what their level of certainty is. We're not using the normal scientific standards of certainty, of probability of this is going to happen. They created their whole new scale because there's so much uncertainty in these calculations. Yet, we're seeing influences on our national policy about electric, how much money we spend on electric cars, fossil fuels, um, you know, uh, our federal government has spent billions of dollars on alternative energies, all of which is good stuff, but some of it isn't. But this is also based on speculation and best calculation. So we have actual data. I mean, everything that I was talking about this morning is NASA data. Uh, and I'm going to uh, give the charts to Peter Christian, and, and he's going to do an article on it, and we'll post it. You can do your own own web search on this material, okay? Uh, so I'll give you the name Andre Filis, uh, uh, F-L-I. Yes, he's a Slovakian scientist who's done most of the research and all this stuff. You can look it up yourself. So all I'm doing is reporting what is out there in the literature. Um, And again, I'm going to push back pretty hard on this. I have never said that climate change is not real or that all these other people are wrong and I am right. What I'm doing is bringing attention to a phenomenon uh, that, based on what I have looked at, kind of explains what's going on. We have a record La Nina, cold Pacific temperatures. Uh, we have record snowfall. We have a prolonged Pacific decade, cold Pacific decadal oscillation. Um, so what is causing this? What are some of the inputs? And really, when we talk about atmospheric temperature and our climate and our weather, it's all about inputs and outputs. So solar input, how much energy is coming out? And uh, how much energy is being radiated back off the Earth and what is interfering with that process? So that's all I'm doing is bringing attention to that. So, uh, again, there, there's, there, there's, there's no political motive behind this. Not at all. Well, I, mean, Harry. I, I mean, we all have political ideas, though, about how and we, what we think is. Harry, right you're, you're, wrong, you're, so. you, you are assuming facts, not in evidence. OK, no, no, I'm, 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 I know I have political things and I know you do and everybody does. So, I, you know, can you uh, yeah, fact that. Can I'm, we willow out I, that, I'm, um, I'm just, our, our, yeah. our arguments? That's okay. all I'm going to point okay. out. Is you know, That's fine. Yeah. Harry, yeah, thank, we all have thanks, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. We're up against another break. We have Nancy, Emmett, and Mike. We're going to come right back with more right after this. Hey. Okay, we're back on Talkback. 721-1290 is our number. We have so many callers who want to visit with Dr. Cole. We're going to jump right back in. And Nancy has been waiting the longest. Nancy, good morning, and thank you for holding. Go ahead, please. And thank you so much. I have a comment, and then I have a question for the doctor. I uh, follow NASA because I think that they are excellent weathermen, and they know about uh, at- atmospheric changes. And I'm a firm believer, just like NASA, that the moon activities and the Earth are uh, connected. Uh, what the moon does affects not only the tides, ocean tides on Earth, but also has a, uh, an effect on our weather patterns. And um, the moon steadies the Earth as it spins on its axis. And I know that air temperature is not affected by moon phase. It's a, you know, it's affected by the season and whether there is a cloud cover or not. And our ancestors also followed the moon. Uh, a pale moon, of course, indicates rain. A red moon uh, brings wind. And, uh, you know, a Christmas full moon predicts poor harvest and et cetera. And so uh, that's my theory on the moon and Earth. And, I, and Doctor, I want to know, NASA tells us that there's a phenomenon every 13,000 years uh, of a tremendous meteor shower that changes uh, the land mass on Earth. And uh, we were supposed to get hit in the year 2015. This has not happened. I mean, this could happen in 50 years or 300 years. Who knows? But I've seen the maps that they have. And the land mass on the Earth is tremendously affected. I mean, there's no no Earth from the state of Montana to the West Coast. That's gone. As an example, another example, the Mississippi River is like three times as wide as it is uh, today. And I just kind of want to know what you uh, think about that. And thank you so much. All right. Thanks for the call. Lots of interesting stuff there. Well, uh, I'll profess... Uh, uh 
ignorance on the meteor shower phenomenon. Um, certainly there are cycles. Uh, I mean, as our solar system moves uh, in the Milky Way, uh, we encounter different uh, phenomenon. Uh, cosmic radiation is one of them that I've actually uh, looked at and read about because that also affects the energy balance of the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, you're absolutely correct about the moon and that the moon's effect on our atmosphere has been studied quite intensively. Uh, so like you mentioned, uh, the tides that we see on the oceans that are due to the moon so where the moon's the closest to the earth it creates a bulge in the in the ocean that's the high tide and where the uh, the part of the earth that's furthest away from the moon is where you have the super low tides okay and so it, it really depends on how close the moon is to the earth and its elliptical orbit around the around the earth and and uh its position to the earth but it does the same thing to our atmosphere we get a bulge in our atmosphere just like uh, ocean uh tides uh both closest to the moon and opposite of the moon the atmosphere bulges because there's a lesser gravity effect right there and that bulge does have a profound impact uh, on our weather. Uh, so when you are under a full moon and under that bulge, you tend to get more rain uh, because the, that atmosphere, you, you, you end up with a high pressure there. So more density in the atmosphere. Now, those effects have been measured and they're, they're very, very slight. It's like a one tenth of one percent effect on temperature and rainfall and things like that. So it's really hard to differentiate that from the effects of high pressures and low pressures and things like that. Uh, but yeah, you are absolutely correct that the moon ha does have a very strong impact on our atmosphere, but it's predictable because the moon has been cycling around the earth for a long time. And so, but just like high tides uh, in, the, in the oceans, we get high tides in our atmosphere from the moon, which affects our, our weather. Okay. Uh, so meter showers and all that stuff, I don't know, yeah. know anything yeah. about, so can't help you there. Let's get Emmett up next. Emmett, good morning. Thanks for holding. You're on Talk Back with Dr. Kolb. Go ahead. Thanks for taking my call. Well, um, I got a few questions. One, I did get some zinnia seeds, you know, because I want to start gardening. I got them at Albertsons, but it's interesting. I wondered about. I have questions about my garden again this year. It says um, that basically, in here in Montana, according to this little chart, you plant them in June. Oh boy, I've been planting mine in May, or maybe there's some other seeds that can be planted in May. But um, I, I didn't get them all. Should I wait until June and follow the directions exactly to plant my garden or plant them in May? Because I don't want the disaster that happened last year where I hardly had a garden at all. Um, also, um, is it my imagination or have seeds and seed packets increased in price? I'm looking at the seed packet I have for my zinnias, and it's $3.29. I remember they used to be $2.50 or even a, just a little over a dollar. Have they increased over the years in price? And I kind of wonder about even the colder and rainier climate that we had last year. I wonder if even part of that might be the moisture in the atmosphere that you are talking about in the stratosphere. Maybe that has cooled things down even here in Montana and made it harder for me to... Um, you know, grow my flowers because usually I'm a good gardener. Last year was awful. So if you have any advice right. on that, let me know. Thank yeah, you. Th thanks for the call. Go ahead. Well, first off, um, I would strongly suggest if you're, if you're in the Missoula area, uh, talk to Sandy Perrin. She's our horticultural specialist and she's outstanding here in Missoula. She's with the MSU Extension Office. And this is stuff she looks at. So those general guidelines you talk about uh, are like multitasking. They do everything equally poorly. Okay. Uh, they, they give you a general guideline, but what's happening in Missoula Valley is going to be very different than what's happening in, uh, uh, say, Polson or somewhere else. So the microclimate plays a big role. Now, the long-term forecast for the spring using all of NASA's tools and all of that that I've looked at is we're expected to have above average rainfall and below average temperatures this summer. Uh, so that's both good and bad because when the soil's wet, you get a lot of damping off fungi that will eat your seeds and kill your plants. On the other hand, uh, what does grow won't dry out. Uh, so, but as far as when to plant, I will defer to Sandy on on that uh, because this is something that she is really an expert at, something she tracks, and she will probably be even will find out where you live in Missoula and give you closer guidelines uh, than I can in, in a capacity. What's what's? Do you have a contact number? 
Does I he? do not. Just okay. look up uh, MSU Extension, Missoula MSU Extension Office. Okay, right. and Sandy okay. Perrin is her name, and she's just a, a really outstanding horticulturist. She teaches the Master Gardener program, um, and and you know, so the Missoula Extension Office is really tied into local gardeners. Uh, they offer the Master Gardener class. Uh, Patrick Mangan is also there, and he also works in that arena. So they can give you much more detailed information than I can. We're going to come right back, 721-1290. We have Mike, Dave, and Ed, and uh, I believe uh, a few phone lines that are still open at 721-1290. You want to tap the expertise of Dr. Peter Kolb joining us here in the studio. We'll be right back. Let's see. Thinking about retirement? Make sure a My Social Security account is a part of your plan. A My Social Security account gives you secure access to your personal earnings history and benefit status. You can find out if you're eligible to receive benefits, compare retirement benefit estimates at different ages or dates, view spousal benefit estimates, and more. Plan for your future. Open a My Social Security account at ssa.gov slash my account. Social Security. Securing today and tomorrow. Produced at U.S. taxpayer. Expense. Hey, we're back on Talkback. Uh, joining us here in the studio, Dr. Peter Cole with MSU Extension University of Montana uh, School of Forestry as well. Let's get Mike up next. Mike, good morning. You're on with Dr. Kolb. Go ahead. Good morning, Dr. Kolb. Uh, what I was thinking about, I, oh, maybe 15 years ago, I was in a lecture by Jesse Johnson, who I think is now the chairman of the computer science department, and he did a lot of research in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And he said one of the things that happened, this is a long time ago, was that they somebody they covered a big area with soot and it was supposed to help change the atmosphere or warm something up or I don't know what. But anyway, I just wondered that maybe that's too long ago to even be relevant, but I just wondered if that could be, have an effect on anything. Sure. Well, you're talking about changing the albedo, which is the reflectivity or absorptivity of surfaces on the earth. And that is a huge yeah. effect. I mean, uh, Steve Running, uh, who's now emeritus uh, University of Montana, who is actually one of the first members of the International Panel of Climate Change, um, looked at uh, with, uh, you know, he had two satellites, the uh, Terra and the Aqua satellite that looked at surface temperatures and also a albedo effect. And he uh, uh, did indicate that uh, Earth's surface uh, albedo has a huge impact and it's kind of a feedback cycle because when you have a super warm period and less snow, uh, the Earth absorbs more solar radiation because white, uh, you know, reflects most of the solar radiation. Uh, so when you're in a drought condition with l- less snow, uh, it tends to compound the effect because it absorbs more solar energy. Whereas when you're in a cold stretch and everything's covered with snow, uh, it compounds itself because it reflects more of the solar energy, which makes things colder. Which is, thank God we have oceans because oceans are pretty neutral in their albedo. They're always that color and they moderate our temperature. But if we didn't have oceans, our temperature would fluctuate a lot more, which is why when you go inland, like eastern Montana or central Siberia, they have massive temperature fluctuations because they don't have that moderation effect of the oceans. Oh, interesting. Well, that might be too long ago to even have any effect anymore. I don't know. But anyway, I just thought I'd mention that because it seemed like it was important like 15 years ago. So. Oh, no, it's still very important. And, and those kinds of studies is led to the body of knowledge that uh, increases our understanding of how all this stuff works now. Thanks for the oh, call, sir. Cool. Appreciate it. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. Let's get Dave on the line. Dave, good morning. Thanks for holding. You're on with Dr. Kolb. Go ahead. Yeah, first of all, I thought I'd like to summarize what you were saying about the weather. It sounds like to me that most scientists believe that global warming is a long-term trend, but the, but this volcanic eruption may have uh, temporarily, I don't know, I say it questionable, how long temporarily disrupted this this trend. But you were talking about Siberia, and I'm wondering, uh, you know, I've, the woolly mammoths. Uh, some of them, I guess, got frozen solid in the in the ice really, really quick. From what I've read, do you have any idea? Was there a certain in, uh, incident that caused this, or, or is this all fiction? And um, when it happened, I, I've been really curious on. Well, uh, again, if you go into our global climate history, and we go back uh, to this transition period between the last last ice age and the Holocene medieval optimum. Uh, that transition happened over several hundred years, but uh, in several pulses with massively uh, quick changes in temperature. And I, I mean, we're talking 10 degrees change in temperature uh, over 100 years. 
And so you had events that uh, would trap animals and humans in the snow. So Etsy, the Iceman up in the Northern Alps, you know, he was buried under a glacier for 5,000 years and preserved, you know. But we forget, even now when we talk about finding all these artifacts up in high elevation areas, because now the snow is melting because of climate change. Well, how did those artifacts get there? Because there was no snow there at that time. So the medieval optum is one of those times. Uh, so that was 800 years ago. But there were there were these bubbles of temperature change. But the biggest one, of course, is the transition from the last ice age to the Holocene. And that's uh, so this is when we're talking about the mammoths getting trapped and the giant sloths and uh, giant bison and things like that uh, being trapped in the permafrost. And it, it's absolutely fascinating because... You know, you can look at the carbon isotopes in their flesh and and kind of figure out what atmospheric gas concentrations were from those. But there's still a lot we don't know about those things. I will tell you that you and I were speaking uh, during the break about how uh, how uh, hard the snow has become and how difficult it is to get rid of it uh, because it's just going to have to naturally melt. You can't even really scrape it away, right? Right. So, yeah, well, I mean, again, we have a pretty good snow accumulation. It's not uniform across Montana, from my understanding. I haven't spent a lot of time looking at those, but we do have a record snowpack uh, here in western Montana, northwestern Montana. And as far as I know, hopefully eastern central Montana has gotten more snow than normal, too, because God knows they they need it. They're just in a horrible drought situation. Okay, let's uh, get another call in. This is, uh, is it another Dave? No, no, we have had. Oh, I'm sorry. Ed, Ed, good morning. You're on Talkback with Dr. Cole. Go ahead, sir. Yes, I want to thank Dr. Cole for bringing up the Tonga volcano again, because you brought it up several months ago, and I know that because I, I looked it up online, uh, and at that time, the possible effect was a warming effect. I don't remember reading a cooling effect, but a year later or whatever, uh, I guess they, they've studied it more, and at least in the southern hemisphere, it's the cooling effect. So thanks again for, for bringing that up. But I wanted to really ask a question about temperature measurement. You mentioned atmospheric temperature measurement and how it's measured. Several years ago there was a report, and I'm remembering 75% of our ground-based temperature stations are no longer valid because of all the development you know in the in the area uh like here in missoula i'm sure there's a lot more asphalt uh, out there than there than there was in the 1950s so when you're talking about uh current uh, land-based uh atmosphere are they land-based or are they coming from satellites now well, that's a great question, and the answer is all of the above, and not just satellites, but also weather balloons. And so, you know, we get back to this China Chinese balloon uh, that was up there at about 50,000 feet. You know, uh, we put those up. I mean, those are routinely put up uh, to monitor those temperatures and our atmospheric temperatures, anything but stable. You know, so like I said, you've heard about these Arctic vort- vortexes and things like that. Uh, but I just pulled up a graph. Uh, so the temperature varies by as much as 80 degrees as you go up in the atmosphere. So uh, obviously as you go higher in elevation in the troposphere, our, you know, our, our living layer, as you, as we would say, uh, we drop down to minus 60 degrees. So we're talking top of Mount Everest and above and where, where jets fly. But as you go up in the stratosphere, you hit the stratosphere, suddenly, uh, 50 kilometers up in the stratosphere, um, our temperature warms to about the same as it is here on the Earth's surface. And then it cools again when it goes in the mesosphere. And then when you go in the exosphere, oh, my God, you get roasted up there. I mean, it's it's like a 1,000 degrees. Uh, so, But there's not much atmosphere, so there isn't a whole lot of energy stored in that. So, um, But, you know, to answer your question, yeah, we've got uh, buoys in the ocean. We've got surface uh, probes. We've got balloons. We've got satellites, all of that. Uh, but the phenomenon you're talking about is also true. We have these heat sinks, these heat islands that are the, the cities, these concrete cities that are big heat reservoirs that have uh, can mess up um, what we consider normal and average temperatures across the landscape. Okay, we're going to come right back. 721-1290 is our number. We have Catherine and Al and several other phone lines open for Dr. Peter Kolb. If you have a question you've been trying to get through, now's the time. We do have some phone lines open. It's 721-1290. We're coming right back. Authentic New York bagels and pastry. Need to replace your Social Security card? In most states, you can request one online with a My Social Security account. 
A My Social Security account gives you secure access to your personal earnings history and benefit status. You can also get a proof of income letter, estimate and apply for benefits, and more. Save time. Go online. Open a My Social Security account at ssa.gov slash my account. Social Security. Securing today and tomorrow. On Monday's Montana Morning, Emily Harris shares with the city on fears of renters. The uncertainty of what their housing is going to cost when their lease needs to be renewed. Being unsure about if they have a maintenance request, whether their landlord will decide, oh, the next term, we don't have to renew your lease because we had to pay more money into your apartment. There are protections for people, but people don't always know those, right? Montana Morning, weekdays 6 to 8.30 on News Talk Radio 1290, KGVO AM, 98.3 FM, and the KGVO app. Okay, we're back on Talkback. 721-1290 is the number. We still have, we have several phone lines open now, but Catherine has been waiting the longest. Catherine, thank you for your patience. Go ahead please yeah good morning um i wanted to to see if peter could talk about uh, a lawsuit that was just just filed in the state of montana the forest service employees for environmental ethics um filed a lawsuit against the forest service for uh, to ban them from using car, uh, chemical retardants uh which is of course one of the um, biggest tools that they have to fight wildfires in our forests and the lawsuit wants them to is is for them attempting to uh, require the Forest Service to obtain a Clean Water Act to use fire retardants from airplanes. And what that would do basically is that it would stop them from using any sort of fire retardant um, that could possibly drop into any water. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit and what that would mean for fighting those nasty wild, uh, wildfires that we have. Um, and what would that mean for the forests? That's a very interesting question. Thank you, Catherine. Well, there are, yes. it's a, it's a, it is a good question. And there are a very uh, multiple facets to your discussion or to your question there. So fire retardant, uh, that, that, that's usually uh, red or, or pink in color so they can see where they dropped it, of right. course, is largely a uh, nitrogen-based fertilizer, essentially. And uh, and it, it has uh, the, the nitrogen-based fertilizer in it because it likes water. It's, it's what we call hygroscopic. And so even though it's wet in a slurry, when you drop it, it stays wet because of, uh, it absorbs moisture out of the atmosphere. So at night when it cools down, it wets itself. Uh, and it stays wet, and that wetness prevents fire from burning through it. If you just add drop water, the water is effective as long as the water's on the ground, but you know a half hour of sunlight and it's evaporate off again and so the additives to fire retardant won't do that; they will stay wet uh, so they're they add the effectiveness of dropping water uh, or aerial tanker drops by tenfold uh, as far as the ability of those retardant drops to have a prolonged effect at, at subduing a fire. Uh, of course, when you add nitrogen or fertilize to a water body, um, you get algal blooms and you know, you get anaerobic situations and it has an impact on the riparian community that's there, uh, which is part of the lawsuit. I, I'm not super uh, informed about the details of the lawsuit because it's a, a, honestly a bit outside my arena of what I look at. And, and what I study. Um, but I, as far as I recall, there's also some health concerns about uh, what prolonged uh, exposure to this stuff uh, does to people like anything, um, whether it's coffee or tobacco or sugar, you know, you, you are exposed to it long enough. There's going to be some deleterious side effects to your overall health. Um, but uh, banning this material would uh, certainly um, significantly hamper aerial retardant drops. Um, like with anything, you know, we try to find solutions to problems. Uh, sometimes those solutions provide additional problems and we try to solve those. So uh, the whole point of science is to continue to improve what we do. And um, hopefully the outcome of all of this is that we find retardants, uh, things that will keep uh, these uh, tanker drops effective and keep absorbing moisture while, without having negative effects on the environment. But that said... You know, anything you add, whether it's fertilizer or, or just food coloring, God knows what, 
is going to have some impact. And it's just then figuring out, is that impact something we can live with or not? Well, when you talk about the, the massive wildfires, especially in California, uh, they just keep coming and coming and coming. Uh, and, and I'm not sure whether a part of that is just poor planning, uh, put, putting putting cities and towns right smack dab in the middle of all these forested areas, or uh, I'm not sure how that all works together. Well, again, this is why I track climate. So in a nutshell... Water is the limiting factor for forests and tree growth. The trees need lots of water, okay? Where you have lots of water, you have forest. Amazon, Midwest, you know, Indiana, you know, all of that. It's humid, it's wet, okay? So in the West, uh, water is the name of the game. So as we have these climatic fluctuations, so say we have 40 years of cool wet like we did from 1940 to 1980. It was the longest cool wet stretch of the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. Our forests grow like mad, because every year they produce seeds. Those seeds land on the soil. They germinate into seedlings. If it's a dry summer, most of those seedlings die. If it's a wet summer, most of those seedlings survive. They develop a deeper root system. They can tap into deeper water sources, and they stay alive, and they kind of survive on. So from 1940 to 1980, our forests westwide grew like mad because we had ample moisture uh, during the summer. It's also when we didn't have wildfire issues. And again, it's the evil forest service putting fires out. Well, it was mainly climatically driven, okay? Since 1980s, we've got, we had some really long dry stretches, okay? Last couple of years, not so much anymore. It's, it's actually gotten cooler and wetter again a little bit. But those dry stretches cause the trees to get water stressed, to die, insects and diseases to go ballistic, fuel loading to go crazy. This is the role of forest management now. And again, these boom-bust cycles are natural to our ecosystems in the West. This has happened many, many, many times over the last 10,000 years, okay? Massive fires that burned up half the state, okay? So, and we have charcoal evidence for those types of events, so what has happened in California is they've shut down their timber industry. They're not doing forest management on a lot of these areas. The forests have gotten overly dense. They have drought like the last couple of years. Trees die. Your fuel loading is through the roof. Your fire behavior is extreme. Same thing in Montana. And that's why the other part of land management, what we're trying to do is these forest treatments where we're thinning the forest. So there's fewer trees uh, on the landscape. They have more water. They stay hydrated. They don't burn as easily. Uh, and so our fires are less severe on those landscapes. If we don't do few active fuel management in the form of live trees and dead trees and surface fuels, then you leave it up to nature. And nature's just going to nuke it all in a massive fire during a super hot, dry summer. We have experienced this over and over and over again. We have a hot, dry summer, especially a series of hot, dry summers, where by year three, all the fuels are dried out. We have fire behavior that can't be stopped. We have cool, wet summers. We don't have big fire issues, okay? The only thing we can manage as people in this in the short term is the fuels on the landscape. And this is where fuel treatments are important. And you can either pay for it through your tax dollars or you can pay pay for it through a vibrant forest products industry that in the process of securing wood fiber for our commodity needs, they're also doing the thinning and the fuel hazard reduction. Wow. There you go. 721-1290 is our number. Al is waiting. We're going to come right back after this quick timeout. Get his call. We have several other phone lines open. Dr. Peter Kolb is in the studio, and we're loving it. We'll be right back. Okay, we are back on Talkback. 721-1290 is our number. Dr. Peter Kolb joining us here in the studio. Al has been waiting the longest. Al, good morning. You're on Talkback. Go ahead, please. Oh, four or five calls ago, you had a gentleman who was asking about zinnia seeds and when to plant them and the price going up and all that. That was Emmett. If I'm able to, uh, Emmett, yes. If I'm able to pass along my own personal, uh, being I'm a, uh, a frugal person, <laughs> cheap's another word, uh, on your zinnia seeds, when the flower's about done, instead of throwing them in the trash can, cut off the flower, uh, cut the stem off right below the flower thing, throw them in a box and put them in your garage or whenever next summer. You have free zinnia seeds. Haven't bought zinnia seeds in 30 or more years. Uh, when you're looking at that flower bulb the, the following year and getting ready to plant uh, zinnia seeds, just pull out that uh, brown stem and the, that little black seed that you buy in uh, the seed packet for $1.98 or two and a half bucks. There's hundreds of them in each bulb. Just 
pull them out and take off the seed, and you get these free zinnia seeds for years. Thank you. Yeah, great advice. Quick question, though, for you. Are you storing them in your garage that is not heated so they get cold in the winter? Uh, that's correct. I just put them in a flat box that I buy uh, tomato plants in. You know, one of these flat boxes got the four-inch ridge on it. I just throw the uh, the the, uh, the old flower thing in there. Sometimes I might get the seeds from two or three years ago in them. Right. So I asked that question because most of the plants that grow in our uh, in our latitude uh, level require uh, seeds to go through what's called stratification. So they need a cold, sometimes even freezing period. Thirty days is the norm for that, um, or they won't germinate real well. So if you're, uh, that's great advice because you know, know know more about zinnias than I do uh, clearly, uh, but for all plants. And, you know, I do the same thing with garden vegetables. I, I collect a bunch of kale seeds, but I stored them in my basement that doesn't freeze. And I got terrible germination off of them. And then I kind of hit myself on the head going, ah, I bypassed the cold stratification. So those seeds, store them where they get cold in the winter. Right. I just, it's a double garage and it's unheated. Just throw them in there. And uh, uh, that way, uh, when you cut that flower bulb off the stem, uh, there's uh, if there's certain colors you don't like, uh, make sure you don't put that one in, in there. You can zero it down to the colors you like for the following years. Or like I said, I haven't bought a, zinnia, a pack of zinnia seeds in at least 30 years. Great advice. Thank you very much. Good job. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Let's uh, move on. I believe uh, Andy is up next. Andy, good morning. You're on with Dr. Kolb. Go ahead. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Thanks for taking my call. Um, so, uh, I've read a study recently, and I can't remember the name of it, but if you Google this, the, uh, the statement I'm about to say, it'll bring up a study from, I think it was 2018 or 2017, and the statement is that protected forests burn with less severity than treated forests. And it goes on to explain, and that, that statement will, will bring up the study, but uh, it goes on to explain that removing all the uh, all the uh, a lot of forest material allows the wind to get in and dry things out and uh, areas that have been logged uh, just get that, that wind blowing right through and dries them out. Uh, they remove most of the uh, organic material on the, on the ground so, so the uh, roots or the trees are kind of dehydrated in the first place. Um, so anyway, just wanted to make you aware of that study and I uh, think you would enjoy uh, reading it. And if you Google that statement, uh, protected forests burn with less severity than treated forests, it'll, it'll show right up. Oh, I'm very familiar with that study, and there are several others that uh, are, are somewhat similar. And uh, there are case studies where they looked at specific circumstances, and I, I'm I'm – if I were, as it were a critical reviewer of those, I would not have uh, allowed them to be published as because they're making statements in there that I don't feel are supported by the data. Okay, so um, this isn't a common argument. I'm actually something I'm addressing in the forestry minutes over the next couple of weeks. Um, that yeah, you get more wind and more sunlight, and you get more energy in the in the understory of the trees in a thin forest, and things fine fuels can dry out a little quicker. But in the overall hydrological budget, uh, the soil stays moist longer, so the living plants down there stay hydrated longer. And fire behavior is very much dictated by fuel moisture because uh, water evaporates at 212 degrees. Uh, organic matter doesn't start to burn until it reaches close to 600 degrees. So all the water has to be driven off of a fuel before it can ignite. The more hydrated your plants are, which is a function of soil water, the less leaf area you have in a thinned area, that soil water stays more abundant. Uh, you get deeper snowpacks, and the, the leaf area on the site doesn't transpire it as fast. So your vegetation is more hydrated longer into the season. So that more than compensates for the drying effects of wind and sunlight uh, unless you're in a super drought and and you have or you have super thin soils uh, and there isn't a whole lot of water stored in the soil then that can certainly play a role in all that but on those type of sites you don't get a lot of unstory veg vegetation because there isn't enough water to support it so that's again going back as we can argue about 
these minutiae of, of effects, and we're forgetting about the bigger effect, which is the hydrological cycle on that site. So it's complicated. There are many different players, uh, factors going on there, but it depends what you want to focus on. And so uh, thinned areas simply do not burn as easily or as severely as unthinned areas. And I have hundreds of case studies of uh, fires that have burned across Montana where I've looked at how fire has behaved behaved across that. Uh, Hundreds of photographs where clear cuts don't burn, thinned areas don't burn, whereas the areas that have not been thinned torch out and support severe fire. So proof is in the pudding. Contact information so we can find out more about your work. Well, email is always good. Um, I don't do phone messages because they take forever to get through. Right. So peter.kolb, K-O-L-B, at umontana, letter U, word Montana, dot E-D-U. Um, I deal with a lot of stuff, so it might take me a little bit to get back to you, but I will always uh, answer emails. Thank you. Appreciate your, your, your expertise today. Thank you. My pleasure. You bet. What's coming up tomorrow at uh, World Affairs Council? All right. So have a great day, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow morning at 6.